And as we kick off in um, chapter 31 and verse 1, uh, woe to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses. So we have a woe. And funnily enough, this is unusually, um, as it seems to me in the ESV, woe is translated woe, which is good. Um, and it's, it's unusual because we had a previous woe about, um, about Egypt in chapter 30. Ah, stubborn children. The ah there is woe. So I'm not really a fan of the translation ah. I think that, you know, that's kind of what you say when you go to a dentist. It's not, it doesn't exactly convey the sense of woe to you um, in quite the way that it should. And then in chapter 29 as well, we had the first of those, R, R-E-L, R-E-L. That's a woe to you, R-E-L. And so this is the final one of the woes, and it's the second one that refers specifically to trusting in Egypt. And that's the reason that is given for the woe here in um, the first verse. Woes to those who go down to Egypt for help and rely on horses who trust in chariots because they are uh, very strong. Oh, chariots because they are many, and in horsemen because they are very strong. But do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh. So, the reason for the woe to the people of Judah who are trusting, as we've seen contextually the last few chapters, they're trusting in Egypt, they're trying to make a covenant with Egypt to overcome the threat of the Assyrians. And the, uh, the condemnation against them for this covenant, it is that they are going to Egypt for help and they're relying on the horses, they're trusting in chariots and they're trusting in horsemen. Now, this isn't an anti-equine rant by Isaiah, but rather that the horses, the chariots and the, uh, the horsemen that these are references to the military might, the military might of Egypt. That Egypt is being trusted because they are more mighty militarily. And I think that in this country, there is something to be said for people being warned and cautioned not to trust in military might. It's not that you're trusting in other nations, but you can trust in your own military might. And there are other Bible passages that speak about that. But again, the problem is, is that they're trusting in things that their eyes can see. They're trusting in the might of Egypt, the power of Egypt, the military strength of Egypt, and their problem is a military one. They are under the yoke of Assyria. And so in their eyes, the solution must be a military one. And it's the same for us. If your problem is financial, then your solution is financial. If your problem is health-related, then the solution is health-related. And so on and so forth. And that isn't to say that if you're short on money, you don't work more hours. And that isn't to say that if you aren't healthy, you don't go and try and get better by doing various things, seeing somebody who knows about such matters. That's not to say any of those things. But the reality is, is that they turn to Egypt for their help rather than trusting in Yahweh. And that second part makes it very clear. You do this not as well as, not because God's told you to, but you do it in, in contrast to, but you do not look to the Holy One of Israel or consult Yahweh. In other words, you've got no idea if God wants you to make a covenant with Egypt or not. Spoiler alert, he doesn't. Because you haven't asked him. And so it is that people are getting on and doing things in their own strength 
They're not concerned about what God would have them do, and therefore they end up doing things wrong. <coughs> now, we see this all the time. We see how people are in a situation, and they have to say, well, what do I have to do? What do I have to do? And they do what they think makes sense to them to resolve the situation, without consulting God, without being concerned for his word. And then if somebody subsequently comes along and says, hey, hold on a second, brother, I don't think you should be doing this. I don't think you should be doing this because look what the Bible says here. At that point, people then will often say, oh, well, that's just your interpretation. Or, oh, you know, well, what would you expect me to do? I'm in this and this situation. And people will either repent or more often they will double down and justify their sin. And all of this could be resolved if people would just go to the Lord first if people would live their lives in accordance with his word. Now, we have the prophets written down for us, but they had the prophets living, and nobody consulted them. No one went to see what the Lord had to say through them, and therefore they turned in their own ingenuity to those who seemed to be powerful, seemed to be mighty, and they did not trust in God. And so in verse 2, and yet he is wise and brings disaster. He does not call back his words, but it will arise the house of the evildoers and against the helpers of those who work iniquity. In other words, what's going to happen is that God is not going to call back his words. What are his words? Well, his words, in one sense, quite probably, are the words that have just been spoken in the previous chapter or so, telling us that God is going to bring judgment upon them for trusting in Egypt. God is not going to go back on those words. But I think that I would perhaps suggest, contrary to how most interpret this, that in fact it goes back further and that God is saying, I'm not going to go back on my words of the Mosaic Covenant. You've committed idolatry. You've turned away from me. You've trusted in other nations. You've trusted in other gods. And you're going to have to live with the consequences of that. Because if you don't, then I would not be a faithful God. I would not have kept my covenant, I would not have kept my word. Because remember, the Mosaic covenant was a conditional covenant. If you do this, you'll be blessed, but if you do that, you'll be cursed. Now, fortunately for us, the new covenant that replaced the Mosaic covenant, a covenant which was not made with us, but it's made with the Jewish people, that we are partakers of the blessings of, that new covenant is a covenant that is unconditional. The promises of the new covenant originate from the covenant with Abraham, which again was unconditional. God said, I will do this, period, regardless of what you will don't do. But here, the Mosaic covenant that Israel were under until the time of Christ, that Mosaic covenant is a covenant that, that God promises that there would be judgment if they were to be unfaithful to him. And so he is not going to call back his words. But notice the first half of that verse. It says, yet he is wise and brings disaster. That's an expression that if you're just jumping in in chapter 31, might seem a bit strange. But for those of us who've been going through Isaiah week by week systematically, this fits perfectly with what he's been saying. We have seen in the recent chapters, 26, 27, 28, 29, 30, since the little apocalypse of Isaiah, that in fact it is God's judgment that comes that is then going to lead the Jewish people to repentance and it will lead them to the point where they do turn to God, where they do repent of their sins, where they do cry out for Jesus to return and where they are saved. And so it is the wisdom of God 
and the kindness of God and the mercy of God that he would bring judgment and would bring disaster. God, in his wisdom, is going to keep his word and bring disaster upon them for their trusting in Egypt and not trusting in him. And as we saw last time, and we'll talk about this in the next verse, trusting in Egypt meant trusting in their gods. And so he will arise, second half of verse 2, against the house of the evildoers and the helpers of those who work iniquity. The house of the evildoers, I believe, is the house, as we've seen with regards to the house of David, more accurately means dynasty, the descendants. And the dynasty system was also the way that the Israel operated. And there was a dynasty in, uh, sorry, did I say Israel? Egypt. There was a dynasty in Egypt at that time, of pharaohs. And so the Egyptian leaders work on, a, uh, on, a, on the basis of descendants from the father and descendants from the father. And so it is the Egyptians, I think, that are being referred to as the house of the evildoers. But it's also, he's going to rise against the helpers of those who work iniquity. That, I believe, is a reference to Judah. If Egypt are the evildoers, why would you want to make a covenant with them? And if you do make a covenant with them, you have taken their side. You have come alongside them. And as such, you are now those who help the workers of iniquity. And so, there is those who are the evildoers and those who are helping them. That would be Egypt and it would be Judah who have aligned themselves with him, with them rather. Now, if that seems harsh to you, maybe you didn't hear the previous chapters, but if that does sound harsh to you, look at the verse following, and he reiterates the same point that he's made earlier. The Egyptians are man and not God. More, more specifically, the Egyptians are human, and they are not Elohim. They are Egyptians, and they're not Elohim. Their horses are flesh and not spirit. When the Lord stretches out his hand, the helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall and they will all perish together. In the previous chapter, we were seeing how the worship of... Sorry, backstep. In the last chapter, we saw how trusting in Egypt was trusting in the gods that oversaw Egypt. Now, this is something we've talked about a lot. It's come up a lot. The, in the early chapters of Genesis the people were trying to reach out to the Elohim, to the demonic realm, to the spirit beings. We get some people today who still want to do that for very similar reasons. That they might give them power, that they might give them hidden knowledge and understanding, that they might give them a chance to be greater than their fellow humans around them, that they would seek the spirit realm to, to get a, a step up, so to speak. And so God has to destroy the world with a flood because the sons of God have come down and they have dwelt with the daughters of men and the offspring of this, this divine, quasi-divine human offspring are the Nephilim, giants. And they so pollute mankind that God destroys the whole earth with a flood. And he starts again. And then at the Tower of Babel, we have exactly the same problem again. Men seeking after the sons of God and calling them down. That's what the Tower of Babel was. It wasn't just a big tower to go, went really, really, really high to try and get to God, like some ignorant person thinking they can reach God if they get high enough. But rather, it was a place of worship that was seeking to draw the spirit realm. 
a ziggurat in those ancient um, in those ancient cultures. And so God prevents it this time, not with a not with a flood after the fact, but he prevents it, prevents it this time before it could happen by preventing the people from working together by confusing their languages. And at that point, the world becomes not one group of people, but the divided groups of people, what we call nations. And in Deuteronomy 32, we're specifically told that, the, that God allotted the various peoples to the sons of God. Some translations say sons of Israel, but the original Hebrew says sons of God. Israel didn't exist at that time, so it couldn't have been Israel. In other words, God is saying, hey, you, you want to have you know, spirit beings that, that over, rule over you, that, that you make covenants with, you make deals with? You go ahead. But now, rather than those, those spirit being offsprings, Nephilim, being something that can ravish the whole world, now they belong to particular nations, to particular tribes. And if your neighboring tribe has got, a spirit, has got Nephilim and you haven't, they're now a threat. And in the same way that wolves and bears and creatures of that sort no longer live or exist in England when they once did because they were a threat and so the people wiped them out in the same way the Nephilim were dealt with by the neighboring tribes and we see this in Genesis 14 even. And so the, down, the, the, the result of all of this is that the nations have always been ruled by demons. It's a strange thing for us to understand when we live in a nation. And clearly some nations are more demonic than others or have been given more power than others. But after God has done that in Genesis 11 and Genesis chapter 12, he says, Abram, I'm going to have you and I'm going to create a nation and nations from you. You are going to be the one that I will build through. I will have my people. So Israel are the one nation who are overseen by God and his angelic beings and not overseen by the sons of God, by the demonic beings. And I say all of that because in the last chapter we saw previously that the trusting in Egypt is essentially trusting in their gods. We saw that in chapter 30 and verse 6 when there was a specific oracle against the beasts of Negev. And we saw in these terms that we have become relatively familiar with that things like adder and fi flying fiery serpent, that's a seraphim. It's a description of a seraphim, which we've already seen in Isaiah chapter 6. So contextually we know what that is. And there, there are these demonic beings that are part of Egypt. And the implication is very, very clear that these rebellious people are despising God and trusting in false gods through the act of trusting in Egypt. Now, why do I say all of that? Because... Why does, Israel, why does Egypt have any military might? Because it has been empowered to do so by those who rule over it. And God has allowed them to do that. But they themselves, the Egyptians, they're just flesh. So if God says, no, Satan, you can't do this. Or like he said to Job, you may do this, but not that. Then who are the Egyptians? They're just flesh. What are these horses? They're just flesh. They will die and fall like any other flesh. But the power behind them can be taken away in an instant. Do you know one thing I feel, I always, 
I've been in America now for, you know, seven years, is it now? Seven years I've been here. And one thing that I always feel that is concerning to me, in Christian circles especially, is a trusting in the might of the nation. We're this great nation. We have this heritage. We are this mighty people. We love our military and all of this. And, and there are things that are perfectly fine in the midst of all of that. But I do feel that so often it gets very, very close to trusting in horses and chariots. I do sometimes feel that national pride can get very close to not trusting in God. And I think that American Christians would do well, and those of us who live in your fair nation, and love your nation, would do well to remember that God could take this all away in a moment. In a moment. If anything that 2020 has taught us is that things can change in a heartbeat. Things that we would have thought impossible can suddenly happen. And that those things can bring changes that are huge. And what we've seen this year is nothing. We have groups of people in this country saying that if one person wins, they're going to destroy the country with violence. There's other groups of people saying that if the other side wins and they try and stack the Supreme Court, that they're going to take up arms. This country, this country could be in civil war. I mean, no time at all. And we've seen this. Bay of, Bay of Pigs, was it, in the 60s? You know, we can see that the entire future of countries and of the entire world can rest on split-second decisions. Push the button, don't push the button. Go to war, don't go to war. And that's what we're seeing here. Here we are with the Assyrians. What do we do? Trust Egypt, not trust Egypt. We're going to trust Egypt. You make the wrong decision and an entire generation is impacted. And everything can change. And this lesson that we are learning from Israel and Egypt is this. Do not trust in other nations. Not even your own. Trust in Yahweh. Trust in God. Trust in Jesus Christ. Do not trust in anyone or anything else. Because if nation comes crumbling down, if the safety and security that you have, have become accustomed to disappears, if the freedoms... <laughs> If the freedoms that you have, and you think you have, suddenly diminish even further, then what do you have left? I'll tell you what, I'll be here preaching the gospel and teaching the word till they drag me away. You have my word on that. We have to decide what we're going to do about things. Whose side we're on. How are we really going to bend the knee? What does that look like? And they were so concerned for their personal safety that they trusted in Egypt and they disregarded God. I could say a whole bunch of things about people not doing what God says because they prefer their own personal safety at this particular time, but I won't. I'll just leave it. I think you can draw your own conclusions. But we need to be careful because fear is the thing that leads us to not trust God. There's a reason that the Bible says again and again, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear, do not fear. Fear is not healthy. Fear is not healthy. And so, moving on. Chapter 31 and verse 3 tells us that the Egyptians and their military might is but flesh 
And so when Yahweh stretches out his hand, that represents his might. Then their helper will stumble, and he who is helped will fall. In other words, just like we saw in the previous verse, the Egyptians and also the Israelites who are aligned with them. They will both fall, and they will both be judged. Those they have aligned with will fall, and so they will fall with them. Is there a lesson here? Oh, you betcha there's a lesson. Do not be yoked to unbelievers. That's your lesson. That's a verse that nine times out of ten, when it's quoted, is applied to marriage. And it's fine. It fits. It's good. It's true. But it applies to a whole bunch more than that. Do not be yoked. A yoke is the thing that would connect two oxen together. So one couldn't go off one way and one couldn't go off another way. Whatever situation you get yourself in, make sure it's one that if, you're, that if the, 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 whatever you're connected to starts going off in one direction, that you can legally, legitimately, and, and without any consequence or compromise, disconnect yourself and not go that way with them. And this is the problem with these covenants that they were making with other nations. When the other nation goes off and does wrong, they are now bound to them. And yes, marriage does fit, because marriage is an unbreakable covenant. It represents the covenant between Christ and the church. Absolutely unbreakable. And therefore, when you get married, if your spouse then goes off and cheats on you, if your spouse then goes off and walks away from the faith, if your spouse goes off and becomes a completely different person, if your spouse gets very, very sick and unhealthy and you're forced to look after them, if everything goes completely pear-shaped, as we say in England, then you are still obliged to be married to them. That is a perfect example of being yoked. But there are a hundred other examples of being yoked. If you invest in a company, and the company you have no control over does terrible things, you can disconnect yourself. That's absolutely fine. But you might lose a lot of money. Are you prepared to do that? If you go into business with an unbeliever, and they start doing things and make decisions that they have the authority to make, maybe they're majority shareholder, you are obliged to go with them or lose your share, perhaps. Are you prepared to do that? We have to count the cost. And we mustn't be yoked with unbelievers. We mustn't place ourselves in situations where we can't get away from or back out from agreements that we've made. The Bible takes covenants very seriously. When you give your word, it's taken very, very seriously. And you're not supposed to back down on these things. And so... When the helper stumbles, the one who is helped will fall. It does concern me in this country when Christians align themselves too much with the will of those in power. And I mean on both sides of the aisle. Because if you stand... And this is why I don't do politics from a pulpit. You will never hear me endorse candidates... You will never hear me say, vote for this person, don't vote for that person. Because you know what? You can stand up and say, hey, we're behind this person, godly guy, he's great. And then that person falls, and then, then, then what happens? You've just recommended a human. You're putting your strength in human beings. The person, I, I endorse one person from this pulpit. Jesus Christ. Because he will never fall, he will never, he will never let us down, he will never not keep his promises. All his campaign promises will be kept. He will be victorious. And he will conquer his enemies, and the righteousness of him will cover the earth. It will happen. And so him and him alone do we endorse. Be careful who you place your trust in. I hope that this, this phrase, the helper and he who is helped, will fall, and they will all perish together. 
I think that that verse is the verse by which you should interpret do not be yoked to unbelievers. Don't put yourself in a situation where the falling of one becomes your falling. And you can't avoid it to some degree. But don't go and place your trust outside of God. Be very, very careful. Okay, verse 4. Here's the explanation of it all. For thus Yahweh said to me, as a lion or a young lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he is not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. So Yahweh of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Well, this is convenient for those of us who were here this morning. We can see some parallels here lexically. We'll draw on those in a minute. But in this next section, the explanation for is given, how it's going to come to pass. And God is described in two ways, both of them being to do with animals. This is deliberate. This is part of Isaiah's rhetoric because he's just done the oracle against the beasts of the Negev. The beasts of the Negev, as we saw contextually, were clearly references to demonic beings. They were trusting in Egypt, and in doing so, they were trusting in, in the spirit realm and their gods. So now, the one who they should trust in is also speaking of himself in terms of animals. It's an ironic statement. You trusted in those animals, but you should trust in these animals. And what's fascinating is that when we had that section on the oracle of the beast of Negev in chapter 30, it says where the lioness and the lion come from. And here, God is described as a lion or a young lion. In other words, he's not equating themselves with them. He's saying that he is like them. And he's making a connection here. They are spirit beings of power. Oh, we'll trust in, look how mighty Egypt is. Well, yeah, but who's made them mighty? It's the spirit beings behind them. So why don't you trust in the mightiest spirit being? The God above all gods. And he compares himself like a lion. And he says, as a lion growls over his prey, and when a band of shepherds is called out against him, he's not terrified by their shouting or daunted at their noise. Today, if you keep animals and livestock, and you live maybe somewhere up north in the wilds of winter, where the snow is deep and the winters are long and cold, you might be keeping animals, and some of your livestock might be threatened by wolves. And if they are, and you're aware of a wolf or perhaps a mountain lion coming out, then those keeping their livestock will go out perhaps with a rifle slung over their shoulder. But what happened if you weren't in the wild northern parts of America, but rather you were in Israel, in their wilderness, hot and barren, not cold and barren. And you're keeping livestock, and you're not threatened by wolves or, or mountain lions, but you're threatened by real, actual, big lions, which lived in those regions at that time. And unfortunately for you, gunpowder hasn't been discovered yet, let alone rifles that you can sling over your shoulder. And so, if a lion wants to come and wants to take some of your sheep, what are you going to do about it? And so shepherds might be there going, whoa, 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 
stop, go away. And by the way, if you ever come across a mountain lion on the trails in the mountains behind us, and they do live there, there's one in Griffith Park, at least one, not two, I think now, in Griffith Park. If you do come across a mountain lion, that's what you're supposed to do. Make yourself big and tall and go, whoa, whoa, lots of noise. Let them know that you're not small and diminutive and easy prey, but you are someone loud and scary that might be a bit more work and not worth the hassle. And so the shepherds will be there, whoa, whoa, making a big noise when the lion has already taken one of their sheep. And the lion's like, you what? What's your problem? I caught my sheep. Who are you? What are you going to do? Big scary man with wavy hands. You're not bothered. And the point that is being made here is this. He says, so Yahweh of hosts will come down to fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. When Yahweh comes down to the earth to fight for his people and to fight and destroy the enemies of his people, it will be on that day like a lion comes to take prey. And the shepherds, the leaders, the kings of God's enemies, say, oh, whoa, whoa, stop. The lion's going to be like, you what? You're no threat to me. Who do you think you are? The point that is being made is this, is that don't trust in the Egyptians and their gods because they're just but flesh and I can end them in a moment. And there's coming a day when I will come down and I'll come down to my people and I will maul your enemies. And I will maul my enemies. And all you have to do to make that happen is turn to me and trust in me. But here you are trusting in the very people who are going to be destroyed. I am your lion, Israel. Trust in me. And so the condemnation against the trust in Egypt is for, verse 4, it is because they should be trusting in God who can terrorize any foe. Now, as I said, we should mention our our lexical link to this morning. Isaiah 31 and verse 4 here mentions Yahweh. It mentions Yahweh of hosts, him and his might and his power, coming down to fight. Um, and there's a play on words here, by the way. The Hebrew word for hosts and the Hebrew word for fights sound very similar. So uh, it would be like, you know, Yahweh the, the fighter will come and fight, something like that. That, that's what's it's kind of a, a poetic play on words. And he's going to come and fight on Mount Zion and on its hill. Where have we seen Mount Zion and its holy hill? We saw that this morning. We saw that in Psalm 2 and Psalm 3. In Psalm 2, verse 6, As for me, I have set my king, there's the word, on Zion, there's your second word, and on its hill, holy hill, there's your third word. And then we saw today in Psalm 3 that when David cries to Yahweh, he answers from that same holy hill. And so we've established in the Psalms. Do you remember me saying in our Psalm sermons, introductions, that, that the Psalms are a bridge from the early part of the Old Testament, the Torah, to the prophets in the latter part? It's a theological bridge taking us from one part to the other. Well, here it is. We have the concept of kingship and God's anointed king, 
being solidified as a doctrine in the Psalms, and now Isaiah once again can run with it. And this is a clear lexical link to Psalm 2, because there's not one, there's not two, but there's three separate words that link us to Psalm 2. In fact, there's, there's actually, um, <laughs> yeah, well, there's, there's three here. Yahweh, Zion, and Hill. And then king is implied within the context as well. And so here we have... Uh, here we have God saying that he will come. And Psalm 2 will be fulfilled when he does come. And so we have this additional information regarding Psalm 2. They told us that the enemies will be destroyed. And here we are told that he will be to them like a lion. The second animal that God is compared to is a bird hovering. A bird hovering. Now, I think here with the bird, we're probably looking at a falcon. Or you guys say falcon, but I can't do that. I'll keep saying falcon. It's Isaiah and there is a falcon. Um, so here in Isaiah, this, this bird is probably a falcon. I say that because though there are many birds that can hover, like the delightful hummingbirds that come and feed in our garden, nonetheless, there is clearly here a picture of mighty beasts. And I don't think God is picturing himself so much as a hummingbird as maybe some sort of eagle soaring or a, a, a falcon hovering. The falcons are the ones that will hover. And they will, uh, a peregrine falcon, will hover in a single spot, looking down at its prey below, looking at it through its eyes from as far as a mile away. It can see its prey as clearly as I can see you. And then dive down, hitting speeds over 100 miles an hour. And by the time that prey gets a whisper of that bird coming, boom, it's been knocked in the back of the neck. That kind of bird. That's what I'm picturing here. So, bird, like birds hovering, so the Lord of hosts will protect Jerusalem, and he will protect and deliver it. He will spare and rescue it. Now, I want you to see what's happening here with this rhetoric. What Isaiah is doing is he's talked about a mighty lion. He's talking about birds hovering, and I'm going to argue, as I've said, that he's talking about a falcon or some sort of bird of prey. But then, but then what he's doing is he's playing with his metaphor. That a lion is mighty and no one will threaten it. And it will take its prey and the enemies will say, no, 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 please don't lion. And the lion's like, whatever, because it's a lion. In the same way, a falcon is mighty and strong and can easily dispatch its prey. But yet what God is doing as a bird is hovering to protect. In other words, the might that can kill prey, that that same might is being used to protect Israel. To protect Israel. Now, you say, well, hold on a second. Is God going schizophrenic here? I thought he was going to maul both the helper and the ones that are being helped. The ones who are trusting. So he's a lion, so he's scary. And now he's a bird hovering. That's probably a falcon. That's scary. But now he's protecting them. What's going on here? Well, firstly, I think the reason for the imagery of a falcon is that a lion and its prey are often seen together. A lion will maybe hide in the bushes or something. It will prowl around. But the, the falcon watches from far off. And it's out of sight. That's the imagery here. The God seems distant. The God seems like he's not there. He doesn't care. Hey, don't, I don't fear you enemies. You know why? Look behind that bush. There's my lion. Roaming around, just ready to pounce if you try and hurt me. I trust in my lion. I'm not scared of you. 
But rather than that, God, when he comes to his holy hill, oh boy, he'll be like a lion then. He'll be close up. You'll see his teeth shining. But now he's like the falcon. He's far, far away. It seems like he's not there. But what he's saying is, is I am as dangerous up there as a hawk is, though I'm far away. But right now, though I'm far away, I'm still here to protect you. You say, okay, well, hold a second. How is he protecting? Is he hurting? What's he doing? That's going to be explained in the very next section. Like birds hovering, so Yahweh of hosts will protect Jerusalem. He will uh, protect it and, and deliver it, and he will spare it, and he will rescue it. Now, I want us to understand this, and we're going to see this uh, in the coming chapters. In fact, all of this stuff to do with Egypt, we're going to see historically what happened a few chapters on. When we hit chapter 36, 37, it's all going to be explained. We're going to see the results. We're going to see these prophecies fulfilled. Now, what I want us to understand is this. When Ahaz trusted in the Assyrians, this, he trusted in the Assyrians because Israel and Judah, uh, sorry, Israel and Syria came right to the edge of Jerusalem. So he trusted in Assyria to protect him. Assyria comes in and wipes them all out, and they come right up to Jerusalem as well. And now they're under the yoke of the Assyrians. And what's going to happen here is that in this rebellion, the Egyptians are going to be destroyed by the Assyrians. And city after city after city will fall again and again and again. Do you remember earlier on in Isaiah, chapter 9, we saw about the northern tribes and how they were seen as a place of great darkness? Because every time the Babylonians, the Assyrians, the Syrians, anybody comes in, they're coming down to Jerusalem from the north. And it seems that each time God protects Jerusalem. Why? Because Jerusalem cannot fall because the house of David has to be maintained. Ultimately, Jerusalem does fall and the nation is preserved outside of Jerusalem. But at this time, Jerusalem hasn't fallen. It's God's holy city. And... They come always to the brink of Jerusalem. And those poor northern cities, they get destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt and destroyed and rebuilt. And each time Jerusalem, right up until the Babylonians, Jerusalem was the stopping point for all of these nations. That's why the Babylonian destruction was something they weren't expecting. Oh, we've had enemies come and attack us in the past, but they never got through Jerusalem. And so it is. That God is going to protect Jerusalem. He will protect and deliver it. He will spare it and rescue it, at least from the Assyrians. And ultimately, and I hope you see this here, the birds now that God is protecting Jerusalem. Now that's seen in the outworking in Isaiah uh, 37, when the Assyrian attack is described. But I think that it is also seen more broadly and eschatologically. Even though the Israelites were kicked out of Israel for like the best part of 1900 years, nonetheless, God always had his eyes on Jerusalem. Hence the, the restoration of Israel in 1948, the reestablishment of Israel. And hence, one day, God will have it again as his capital city, and Jesus will come and he will rule and reign from that holy hill. And so we have him looking over Jerusalem, as a bird, because one day he's going to return as a lion. He will return as a lion to that holy hill, 
And so now, though he's distant from Jerusalem, he still has his eye on him. There's eschatological promise that is there. Now, verse 6, this is the key part. Because God is going to bring destruction on them because of their trusting in Egypt, and because God is going to be faithful to them because of his covenants with Abraham and with David, and the house of David won't fall, and Israel will be protected. He has his eyes on Jerusalem. What is the appropriate course of action? Is the appropriate course of action to say, well, it's all going to be all right in the end, so we might as well just, you know, do whatever makes sense to us, have a bit of fun, trust in whoever promises us the most, and uh, Yahweh will sort it all out in the end. Of course not. Because the very fact that they're not trusting Yahweh now and they're trusting in Egypt, that very fact means that they are going to fall. The helpers, Egypt, and the helped, is uh, Judah, will fall together. There are going to be consequences for them here and now. Will God be faithful to Israel to the end? Oh, absolutely. Will one day all Israel be saved? Yeah, absolutely. But there are consequences until that time. And one of the consequences right now is that mostly the nation of Israel is in blindness. And most physical Jews today do not believe that Jesus is their Messiah. That's part of the judgment. There's always consequences, even though the covenant isn't broken. So, the appropriate action is to trust in God. See, as Christians, we cannot lose our salvation. If we're truly saved, if we've truly trusted in Christ, if we've truly bowed the knee, if we've trusted in the blood of Christ to save us from our sins and in nothing else, and we're truly saved, then the Holy Spirit indwells us, and we can never depart from him. We cannot lose our salvation. So what does that mean? Does that mean that we can go and sin, and we can have party, and we can do whatever we like? We can live our lives in whatever way we, we want? Because, hey, at the end of the day, we're going to go to heaven anyway. No, because there's always consequences. That's one of the main themes of the book of Hebrews. There are consequences to our sins. And God, according to the book of Romans... Paul tells us that God saved us so that we would be free from sin, not just from its consequences in the next life, but from the power of it now. That we wouldn't go on living in sin. And so for the Israelites, though there is an assurance of future salvation as a nation, they as individuals should see that future salvation as a reason to bow the knee now, just as we as Christians should see our future inheritance as a reason to bow the knee now. And so he says, Turn to him from whom people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. He was the one they should have trusted in, but they have revolted. And they have revolted deeply. They have turned from God very strongly, very firmly. They have done, as we would say, a 180 they have turned the opposite way by trusting in Egypt. They still think that they're Yahweh worshippers. And what Isaiah is showing them is your trust in Egypt shows that you are not. And so he's telling them to turn. They have turned from him, they have, they have turned to him from whom the people have deeply revolted, O children of Israel. For in that day, Notice he's referring to that last day again. And what's going to happen in that last day? 
In that last day, everyone shall cast away his idols of silver, his idols of gold, which your hands have sinfully made for you. In other words, in the final day, you're going to burn up all, your, all, the, all the, the, the things associated with your idolatry. They're all going to go. They're all going to be burnt out. They're all going to be deleted, burnt, gotten away with. We've, we saw that in the previous chapter, didn't we? That they were going to get rid of, I think it was just last week, that they're going to get rid of all their, their idols, and that even the gold and silver that is in them won't be saved and used for something else. They'll just take the financial loss and just get rid of everything. They'll be so, so hating their idolatry that they'll just get rid of it all. That's what will happen. And remember we saw that timeline last time when we talked about the restoration of Israel? They will turn to God, and that though they turn to God, there'll be a short period of time where God does not relent, where they're still under threat, and they will have a period of time when they will live in repentance to him, and in that period of time, they will destroy all of their idols. Those idols will be destroyed. And so what Isaiah is reminding them of now is that, hey, you remember what I just said to you in the previous chapter? On that day, you're going to destroy all your idols before I then come back to my holy hill. So, you should destroy them now. If my return relies upon that, if my return is dependent on that, if me coming to vanquish your enemies and establish my kingdom, if this needs to happen, then why aren't you doing it? To the Christian, I would say, if you're longing for heaven, if you want to be with God, if you want to be away from all suffering and sin, then why are you staying in sin now? That doesn't make any sense. That's what's being said here. It's a, it's a very important link to make. It's in the Bible, Old and New Testament, multiple places. Because God is going to do this in the future, you need to live rightly now. Turn to him, get rid of your idols. And then what will happen, verse 8, the Assyrian shall fall by a sword, not of man, a sword not of man shall devour him. We have a little chiastic structure there. The destruction of the Assyrians by a sword, not of man. By a sword, not of man, they will be devoured. Isaiah is very fond of devouring, isn't he? Isaiah, from chapter 1, has had this, this theme of eat or be eaten. Eat and enjoy the produce of the land. Feast and have fellowship with God. Or else be devoured by God and be devoured by your enemies. Eat or be eaten. And again, the Assyrians here, they are the ones who will be eaten and they will be devoured. And they would fall by a sword. They will fall militarily. But it will not be by the sword of a man. And they shall flee. He shall flee from the sword and his young men shall be put to forced labor. So the Assyrians, so this is the here and now. In the future, God's going to come to his holy hill. In the future, you're going to burn up all your idols. So now, right now, with the Assyrian threat, you've chosen to trust in the Egyptians. Right now, you need to turn from the idolatry, turn from trusting in the Egyptians. You've given them a whole bunch of money. You've paid for this covenant. Tough. Let it burn. Let it go, just like, the, like you will with your idols on the last day. Let it all go. Turn back to God. Place your trust in him, because this is what I'm going to do to the Assyrians. They're going to crumble. 
but it won't be by a military might. Not by the horses, the chariots, and the horsemen of the Egyptians. Not by your military might. But yet they're going to fall, and they're going to flee and run away. And many will be left behind, and they, they will be put into force, uh, forced at labor. That's a bit cryptic, isn't it? If only we knew what was going to happen. I really tempted just to turn ahead and read all of chapter 37 and tell you what happens. If you want a spoiler, you go ahead and read in your own time. But we are going to be in chapter 32 next week, and then 33, 34, we're not that far away. And so we'll maybe leave it. But let us simply say this, that when Assyria, their leader, Sennacherib, falls, then they will fall, and there will be no military might involved, and they will be struck down. They'll be struck down by the sword, but it will not be through mighty armies. They will flee, but it will be a supernatural thing that causes them to flee. So that's something to look forward to in chapter 37. But short story, Isaiah's prophecy will very shortly be fulfilled. Now, why is that irrelevant? Why is that important? I mean, you've got a prophecy in chapter 31, and it's fulfilled in chapter 37. I mean, it's like, dude, you wrote the whole book. That's not clever. <laughs> you know? You tell us one thing, and then it happened. For those people at that time, it's so significant. It might, to us, come as one book, and therefore there's no significance to it for us in one sense. Yes, the significance. Why is it significant that he prophesies something in chapter 31 and then it's fulfilled in chapter 37 and everybody reading the book sees it fulfilled straight away and it's done to them? To the people of Israel, this was huge. Because what's happening is he's saying, look, you shouldn't trust in Egypt, you should trust in God. You're trusting in Egypt means that you're going to be destroyed and the Egyptians will be destroyed as well. But also know this, you should have trusted in God because God is able to defeat the Assyrians. And so then what happens is God's word's fulfilled. They trust in the Egyptians, the Egyptians come along. They and the Egyptians are both defeated by the Assyrians. But then they do turn to God and they are protected from the Assyrians and God intervenes. And the point of it is this. God said that you and the Egyptians would fail. You fail. Whoa, God was right. What did Isaiah then say to do? To turn to him and that he would conquer the Assyrians. So what do they do? They turn and God conquers the Assyrians. That's called building faith. And I want to encourage you, folks. We have for weeks and weeks and weeks been speaking about the importance of trusting in God. Not trusting in anything else. We talked this morning in Psalm 3 about being able to just go to sleep. Enemies gather around you. And David said, I went to sleep and I woke up and God sustained me. Just trusting in God in the midst of trials and difficulties. And I pray that as you do that, that God would show himself to be mighty. Because when he does, you won't doubt anymore. When you go through a trial and you trust God and he carries you through, then you know he can be trusted. And that, that impacts your life for decades to come. When you see God, where you may be a young person and, and, and you trust in God in a difficult time, and you find that when you turn back to God and you trust in Him,
that though it might be hard, though it might be difficult, that God comes through, that he lifts your head, that he sustains you, and that he is glorified even in the midst of trials and difficulties. Then what do you do next time trial comes? You trust in him again. What do you encourage other people to do? To trust in him. And you become somebody who is changed and who changes the lives of others. But if you don't trust in God, and if you succumb to despair, then what happens is you never get to see what God would have done if you trusted him. You get to pick up the pieces and feel like God's let you down, when in fact you never turned to him. Not in the way that you should have done. You didn't trust in him. And so there is a lesson here for Israel. The lesson is that God will come through and when the Assyrians fall, boy, will they know. His rock. Now the his here, contextually from verse 8, the previous antecedent, as we say grammatically, is Assyria. The Assyrian shall fall, he shall flee, his rock. We're used to the word rock referring to God, aren't we? That we hide in the rock, because if we don't hide in the rock, the rock will, will, will fall upon us. That God is a rock and he is either our protection or he is the one that destroys us. And so the rock speaks of might. And so when we say the Assyrian rock, we're talking about the might of the Assyrians. In one sense, this probably at face value refers to their army. To their army. Because that is indeed what happened. Their army passed away in terror. We'll read about that in chapter 37. But on the other hand there has been much emphasis on the spiritual support behind these foreign nations, and the rock is a term that has been used consistently by Isaiah to refer to their spiritual strength, which is Yahweh. And so I do, not, I do wonder whether again there is another nudge towards the spiritual realm, the unseen realm. But certainly at face value, it seems to speak of the army, and so the army and those that power it, maybe, shall pass away in terror, and his officers desert the standard in panic. In other words, the standard being, the the standard, the flag, as it were, of the nation will be deserted. They're just going to flee. They're going to leave, drop everything, and just run away. That's how it's going to be resolved. And this is declared by Yahweh, whose fire is in Zion, and whose furnace is in Jerusalem. God is a burning fire, consuming fire, purifying those who trust in him and destroying those who don't. He has a zeal that burns for Jerusalem. You see this reference to fire and furnace is in Jerusalem. Here's more of this poetic Hebrew parallelism where we have the same thing said twice but the second time it's different only slightly but significantly so and here we have fire paralleled with with furnace and we have Zion paralleled with Jerusalem and and the issue here is that God burns for Jerusalem is that good or bad well the answer is (laughs) both if you're in Jerusalem and you're rebelling against God that's bad He's going to burn you. But if you are with Yahweh, and if you're faithful to him, and if you bow the knee, 
then that's good. He purifies his people. A couple of things that are interesting to note here regarding this. Firstly, at the beginning of chapter 29, we did this whole section about Egypt. And the build-up to it was kind of two-plus chapters, and we kind of only really hit it properly in chapter 30. But he spoke to, to Jerusalem, and he called Jerusalem by another name, which is Ariel. Ah, Ariel, woe to you, Ariel. And Ariel has two meanings. It's used to speak of Jerusalem, but in its root meaning it can mean two things. One is lion, and the other is furnace. And so the section in chapter 29 begins with a double reference. Ariel, Ariel. And here at the end of chapter 31, we have the section that deals with God dealing with it, them and their enemies. And it is him as a lion, and him as a burning furnace. It connects that whole section together. You are Jerusalem, and God burns for Jerusalem, and you should trust him, and he will be your lion, and he will be a furnace for you. The other interesting thing is that this same word for furnace is used in Genesis 15, when God makes his covenant with Abraham, a covenant where normally Abram is the weaker party, having sliced up animals would walk through them as a warning to him of what would happen to him if he crosses the mighty party. That's how covenants were made. But God puts him in a deep sleep. And then God descends, and he descends, and he passes through the animals. And he places the onus, the burden of keeping that covenant on him and on him alone that he is the one who is obliged to be faithful, not Abraham. That he will keep his promise, even if Abraham is unfaithful. And it is him who must be destroyed if he is other, ever unfaithful. And when God descends in that picture, in what form does God come? A smoking pot, a burning furnace. The same word is here. This is a reminder that God will ultimately prove to be faithful to Jerusalem, that he will not abandon the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, that he will keep his covenant with them, he will give them the land, but it won't just happen out of thin air. They must turn to him. They must turn from their trust in others. They must turn from idolatry. And for now, for this day, for this era, and for the future, that cannot mean anything else other than mourning for the Messiah that their ancestors killed and turning to him in faith. And when they do that, and when they turn finally from their trusting in anything else, then Jesus will return, save them from their enemies, and establish his kingdom upon his holy hill. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your, for your glorious word. We thank you for the fact that you are a God who keeps his promises, that the onus is on you and not on us, that our unfaithfulness will not diminish your faithfulness. But Lord, it is not despite that, it's because of that that we pray that we would turn from trusting in other things, in other gods. May you alone be our shield. 
May we have no other shields. May you alone be our glory. May there be no other. And may you alone be our sustainer, the lifter of our heads. May we trust in you alone, Lord, we pray. Amen.